This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The Apostle Paul, as you know, I'm sure, wrote roughly about two-thirds of the New Testament. After his conversion, uh, he immediately uh, went alone in a secluded area and spent a long time in prayer with Christ. And the result from all of that uh, has given us two-thirds of the New Testament, has given us this incredible revelation, uh, which is the basis of almost all of our knowledge about the church of Jesus Christ and his suffering on the cross and so forth and why he went through all of that. The Apostle Paul makes it very, very clear. And so... Books like Romans and Ephesians and Colossians uh, have tremendous revelation truth in them. And as we dig into those, then they challenge us, they inspire us, they encourage us uh, to know Christ better. And whenever Paul is writing to these various churches, when he talks about man, uh, and when I say man this morning, I mean that in a generic term, uh, I'm, I'm thinking both men and women and particularly the body of Christ. Now, you women know, believers, you know that you are the sons of God. You're included in that, the sons of God, just the way the man is included in the bride of Christ. And so, when Paul speaks of man in the terms I'm going to use this morning, he's speaking of men and women, particularly <coughs> men and women in Christ. He talks about natural man. He talks about the spiritual man. He talks about the carnal man. He talks about the old man and the new man and the inner man and the outer man. And it's good for us to know what these terms mean. Some of them, some of them will be painfully obvious, but others are not so obvious. And some of them actually has caused a problem in certain areas within the church. And so this morning, this is what we want to look at. We want to look at these terms that Paul uses when he talks about the man. First of all, he talks about the natural man. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And so the natural man here that Paul is talking about is the non-spiritual man, those who are not in Christ, those who are unsaved, those whose lives is governed by his unregenerate spirit, and with his mind, and with his body. And he has, the Bible says, the nature of his father, the devil. <coughs> the nature of his father, the devil. The same nature that Adam inherited from the devil when he subjected himself to him in the Garden of Eden. In John 8, 44, Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, 
and the desires of your father you want to do. So natural man is governed and manipulated in the spirit by the spirit of the evil one. Now, of course, for the most part, he would not be aware of that and would be absolutely horrified at the very suggestion of that. If you said to somebody who's unsaved, who's unregenerate, who doesn't know Christ, that you're of your father, the devil, <laughs> they would take great offense to that. But the Bible actually, Jesus and Paul make it very, very clear that that is so. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, Paul says, the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of those that believe not, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in them. But the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not. That blinding is so real and it's so good that they don't even know they're blinded. They never stop for one second to think, I am blinded to the truth of God's word. I'm blinded to the truth of Christ. I'm blinded to the truth of the cross. It doesn't even cross their mind. That's how real the deception is and how much we're governed by the natural man. Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses, uh, describes this very, very clearly. Paul said writing to Christians. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also you were once... you. Uh, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul makes it very, very clear that we were of our father, the devil, that we had that nature in us, that rebellious, sinful nature. And Paul makes that extremely clear to us. So this is the natural man. In Romans chapter 1, again we see the natural man. <coughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. 
Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of that which is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. There is a picture of natural man at his worst. Did not want to retain God in their knowledge. Natural man receives his knowledge, as we said last week in another context, through the senses, the five senses. And those five senses that are within this physical frame of ours uh, are necessary. God put them there. But they can be easily manipulated and controlled, even by the evil one. And Paul talked about that even in those scriptures that we read together. Or seeing, or hearing, or touching, or tasting, or smelling. Even the Garden of Eden, you remember. In Genesis chapter 3, after, after the evil one came and lied about what God had said, after that, then the serpent said to the woman, he said to the woman, so this involves hearing, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. So she's hearing, and she's seeing. And a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. So she touched it, she handled it, and she ate it, so she tasted it. And surely she must have smelt it as she ate it. So all of those senses were involved. And the evil one used that against her. He manipulated that which was meant for good. He turned it against her for evil. Natural man has got a problem. Once he gets to the end of his natural knowledge, he uses speculation instead of revelation. He uses fantasies instead of faith, theories instead of truth. And this is the deception and this is the lie of Darwin's evolutionary theory. It's built on speculation. It's built on theories. It's built on guessing and surmisings. 
It's unprovable. It's untestable. It's an ever-changing hypothesis. Always ever-changing. Because it cannot and never will be proven. You know, there's two types of science, isn't there? There's that which is observable and testable. We can see it. We can do it. We can prove it. But then there's that which is historical that involves origins, which is just speculation, really. Because nobody was there. We can't prove it. We can't test it. It's not observable. But that's what it's built on. But that's natural man. In Romans chapter 3, Here's another short litany of natural man's offenses. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's natural man. But what about the spiritual man? The spiritual man is the man who's reborn. His old unregenerate spirit has been born again from above. He has received the life of God, the life from above. His old sin nature that he inherited from Adam that originated in Satan is dead the Bible says. He is a new creature in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creature. All things are passed away. All things have become new. His life is no longer governed by sin. Romans six fourteen. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Does that mean that we can't sin? No, not at all. We can and we do. We'll come to that in a moment or two. But it says it shall not have dominion over you. It shall not control your life the way that it used to. Even when you were unconscious of it, it controlled us, but not any longer. The spiritual man, his life is no longer even governed by his senses. He walks not after the flesh, but the spirit. He walks by faith, not by sight. These senses that God has put within us are wonderful. They're wonderful. They separate us greatly from the animal world. But yet, we're not to be totally controlled by them. And this is where faith comes in. This is for believing when you cannot see and you cannot feel, you cannot touch, you cannot hear. But we believe. Galatians 2.20, we sang it a moment ago. I am crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live 
in the flesh, not by the flesh, but in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The spiritual man's life is now yielded to the Holy Spirit. He's spirit-filled. He's spirit-led. He's spirit-empowered. He's spirit-controlled. The fruit of the Spirit is in his life and is evident for others to see. This is the spiritual man. He's been made righteous. He's been made holy. He's been sanctified. He's been redeemed. He's been justified. What a transformation. What a difference on the inside. And even many a man or woman who was transformed on the inside, the transformation came on the outside also. They looked different. Their life had changed. What a wonderful, glorious thing is God's redemption. Amen. Preacher one time was preaching out in the street. He'd gathered quite a crowd. And always there's hacklers. And there was an old man standing over. And he was dressed in a desperately dirty, filthy old suit. And he had a bottle of wine in his hand. And the preacher's preaching. And people are hackling. And this man shouts, Preacher, you see that old man over there? Atheism can give that man a new suit. And the preacher says, See that old man over there? Christ can put a new man in that suit. And that's a different thing altogether, isn't it? Christ can put a new man in that suit. What a transformation. We have been born again of God's Spirit. We're not what we used to be. Yes, we're not perfect, we know that. But we're not what we used to be. And God is in the process sanctifying us, making us more into His image until finally we shall stand before Him in His image. The job will be complete. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. There's the natural man. There's the spiritual man. But then there's the carnal man Paul talks about. The carnal man. <coughs> carnal means pertaining to the flesh, earthly, sensual. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Describes carnality. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul here is writing to the church? He's writing to believers. People who should be spiritual. But instead, they're being carnal. <coughs> and isn't it interesting he's writing to the Corinthian church? The most charismatic of all the churches. The most gifted of all the churches. The church where the Gifts were freely flowing continuously. And yet in spite of that, they're as carnal as can be. Listen to what he says. Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, 
could not speak to you as unto spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. In other words, you haven't grown up yet. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you're still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? You're having your favorite preachers and you're comparing and you're taking sides. He says it's carnal, it's fleshly, it's not spiritual. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed? As the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants, he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You're God's faith. You are God's master builder. And so he goes on and he berates them. He tells them off because they're carnal. And they really were. If you read through First and Second Corinthians, you'll find that they were getting into rows with each other and taking each other to court. Paul says these things must not be. They shouldn't be. You're doing this before the ungodly. <laughs> he says, don't do that. Suffer loss instead. <coughs> they had got to the stage. And this, this was a church that he loved. These were believers. These were gifted people. And they got to the stage where something they were getting drunk. <laughs> Can you imagine that? They were having love feasts. They'd come together, we'd call them potluck suppers. <laughs> and they were actually getting drunk at it. No wonder he was angry and called them carnal. And there was even immorality, the like of which was shameful, he said. Absolutely shameful. And they weren't dealing with it. They were letting it go on, ignoring it. But this is the carnal man. He's not controlled by the Holy Spirit. He's not even controlled by his own regenerated, born-again spirit, which he should be. He's allowed his flesh, his own feelings, his human knowledge instead of revelation, his own physical desires and passions to dominate and control his whole life. That's what was happening in the Corinthian church. He's not renewing his mind to the Word of God and his body with its passions and desires. He's allowed to lord it over his spirit. That's what's in control. And Paul says that's carnal. It's not spiritual. He doesn't take heed to Romans 8 and 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. His born-again, recreated spirit is not in control. Make no mistake about it, he's born again. He's recreated. He has Christ as his Savior, but he's acting and living as if it's not so. Have you ever met any Christians like that? <coughs> They're acting and living as if it's not so. That's carnal. Christ is a Savior, but is Christ his Lord? 
You see, he just doesn't want to be Savior. He wants to be Lord. Just doesn't want to take us to heaven, but he wants us to live victoriously on the way to heaven. And the only way for that to happen is if he is Lord. He's given to jealousy, outbursts of anger. He's saved, but he's shallow. He's born again, but he still remains a baby. He's in constant need of attention, and he huffs and he pouts a lot. And I've met many like that over the years, let me tell you. And the hardest ones to deal with. And it's not a very good advertisement for Christianity. Sure it's not. A carnal Christian is the worst advert for Christianity. Because they're professing one thing, but they're not living it out. And the world does not like hypocrites. Sure it doesn't. It would rather you be one thing or the other. But this half and half thing is no good. Sure it's not. And then he talks not only about the natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal man, but he talks about the outer man. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore do not, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Obviously, this is speaking about our physical frame. No question about it. Can't be in denial about it. It's perishing. Some quicker than others, but still perishing. Sally's dad died there just two weeks ago, 97 years old, worked till he was 83, 84, physically every day of his life. But eventually, in spite of all of that, fit and healthy as a butcher's dog he was, in spite of all of that, the old frame wore out and he's gone to the glory. Some of you are very good at taking care of yourselves physically. You eat the right things. You exercise. You treat your bodies right. God willing, you'll live a bit longer for that. Maybe in some of those who don't. Who knows? Can't be sure, but you're trying your best. That's fine. That's all right. Bodily exercise profits a little, Paul said. So you get some profit out of it. But eventually, no matter what you do, the outward man will perish. Amen. Why? Because our bodies are mortal. That means they're subject to death. They're death doomed unless the rapture happens. You know, I was thinking the other day that we have a way, have we not, of, of almost trying to dress up death, don't we? When was the last time you ever a funeral, and it was called a funeral? Thanksgiving, memorial. But we never use the term funeral. And even the morticians, God bless them. Williams, listen to this on a podcast. God bless them. They can make us look rightly. Look, he looks right. He looks like himself. Well, who else would you look like? I mean, it's... But we say these things, don't we? The Egyptians mummified bodies, could not face death, so they mummified. We embalm. 
But no matter what we do, even Lenin in that glass case at the Kremlin, wherever it is, and people still every day line up to look at his embalmed body. But it's perishing. And they must have an awful job keeping that thing. Well, that's enough of that, isn't it? But that's the outer man, isn't it? That Paul tells us in Romans 8, 23, that we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. When this mortality will put on immortality. Hallelujah. And we're waiting for that. And it will come someday, either in the resurrection or in the rapture. But it'll come. And then in a moment, in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, we'll have that resurrection body that will never ever again be subject to death and disease and dying and wasting and weakness and frailty. (laughs) And we'll have perfect 2020 vision, perfect hearing. The old joints will not be creaking. (laughs) And if we, I don't know whether we're going to sleep or not. Sally doesn't like me saying this. She says, when I get to heaven, I just want to rest. I said, no, you got a job to do. There's no time to rest. Forget that business. Forget all that sleeping business. You want to do that, do that here. Can you get up there? There's a universe to run. (laughs) But imagine every day of your life being full of energy and life and vitality. It must be wonderful. I haven't felt like that for a long time. (laughs) But that's the outer man. But then there's the inner man. First Peter 3 and 4, Peter calls it the hidden man of the heart. The inner man. That's the reborn spirit of man when, in relation to Christians. That reborn, made alive unto God spirit of man. That inner man. Even though the outward man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed every day. Thank God. So that's self-evident. Don't need to dwell on that. But here's the problem. Here's the, here's the last two, and this is where the problem comes. There's the old man and the new man. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Paul says, Lie not to one another, seeing you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created it. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Our old man was that old, unregenerated, unsaved spirit which had the sin nature. It had the law of sin and death working in it. Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death, the Bible says. That's the old man. We have put off the old man with his deeds, Paul says. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. The old man is dead, the Bible says. Dead. When you get water baptized and you were put under and you were brought up again, what was that signifying? 
It's like a death and resurrection. It's, the, it's, it's publicly signifying the death of the old man. And you rise up the new man in Christ. So it's like a public declaration of that, isn't it? That old man is dead. It's put off. The new man is alive. But, I hear you saying, if that is the case, why do we still sin? Even though sin doesn't have dominion over us anymore, doesn't control our lives anymore, but why do we still sin if that old man is dead? Well, turn to Romans chapter 6. Sorry, I had a... Uh, Gary, could you read... You see down beside the globe there, that word globe there? There's a New Living Translation there. I meant to actually bring it up with me. That's it there. Thank you. That's the one. Because I just want to read it to you out of this here. Sometimes this makes it a little bit easier for you to, to grasp. So Romans chapter uh, 6. Let me just read a little bit here from the New Living Translation. Has anybody else got that in your lap this morning? No? Okay. Paul said, talking about the wonderful grace of God and what it does for us and then talking about sin, he says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more kindness and forgiveness? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that we became Christians and were baptized to become one with Christ Jesus? We died with him. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father. Now we also may live, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in death, we shall also be raised as he was. Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we shall also share his new life. We are sure of this because Christ rose from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. He died once to defeat sin. Now he lives for the glory of God. So you should consider yourselves dead to sin, unable to live for the glory of God through Christ Jesus. All this is saying that sin no longer has dominion over us. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to its lustful desires. Do not let any part of your body become a tool of wickedness to be used for sinning. Instead, give yourselves completely to God so that you have, be, have this been given this new life. And use your whole body as a tool to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you're no longer subject to the law which enslaves you to sin. Instead, you're free by <laughs> God's grace. So since God's grace has set us free from this law, does this mean that we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that whatever you choose to obey becomes your master? You can choose sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God and receive his approval. Thank God 
Once you were slaves of sin, but now you have obeyed with all of your heart the new teaching God has given you. Now you are free from sin, your old master, and you have become slaves to your new master, righteousness. I speak this way using the illustration of slaves and masters because it's easy to understand. Before you let yourselves be slaves of impurity and lawlessness, now you must choose to be slaves of righteousness so that you will become holy. This is putting off the old man and putting on the new man. In those days when you were slaves of sin, you weren't concerned with doing what was right. And what was the result? It was not good. Since now you're ashamed of those things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that's all well and good. Chapter 6, wonderful. Chapter 8 is wonderful. The problem is chapter 7. This is a problem. This has caused a lot of division within the church. And if we get it wrong, we'll be confused. So we need to get it right. So let's just read on. All right? Chapter 7. Now, dear friends, you who are familiar with the law... Don't you know that the law applies only to a person who is still living? Let me illustrate. When a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as she is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So then, dear friends, the point is this. The law no longer holds you in its power because you died to its power when you died with Christ on the cross. And now you're united with the one who is raised from the dead. As a result, you can produce good fruit, that is, good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused those evil desires that produced sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died with Christ, and we're no longer captive to its power. Now we can really serve God, not in the old way, but by obeying the letter of the law, uh, the old way by obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way by the Spirit. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is evil? Of course not. The law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known what coveting is wrong if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin took advantage of this law and aroused all kinds of forbidden desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. I felt fine when I did not understand what the law demanded. But when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner doomed to die. So in other words, the law in itself, nothing wrong with the law. The law just points out where we're wrong. Now he says, if I hadn't got the law, I wouldn't know I was wrong. But once the law came, I knew it was wrong. And it kept pointing out. And the trouble is, I kept doing the wrong. This is what he goes on to say. And so the good law, which was supposed to show me the way of life, instead gave me the death penalty. Sin took advantage of the law and fooled me. It took the good law and used it to make me guilty of death. But still, the law itself is holy and right and good. How can that be? Did the law, which is good, come from, cause my doom? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation. 
So we can now see how terribly sin really is, how terrible sin really is. It is. It uses God's good commandment for its own evil purposes. The law is good then. The trouble is not with the law, but with me. And, and here's the bit that has caused Christians a lot of problems. Listen to what Paul said. Because I am sold into slavery with sin as my master. I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing that I hate. I know perfectly well that what I am doing is wrong, and my bad conscience shows that I agree that the law is good, but I can't help myself because it is sin inside me that makes me do these evil things. I know I'm rotten through and through so far as my old nature, sinful nature, is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. And when I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. But if I am doing what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It's sin within me doing it. It seems to be the fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another law at work within me that is at war with my mind. This law wins the fight and makes me slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. And Christians say, well, there you are. We've got two personalities. We've got the old man. We've got the new man. And we're going to live like this for the rest of our lives. And sin will just dominate us. And not much we can do about it. You know, I want to do what's right, but I can't. And so forth and so on. That's not what Paul's saying. Chapter 7, Paul is talking about his life under the law before he was saved. When the old man dominated his life and his thinking and his flesh and everything. And he says, listen, that old man is dead. I put that old man off. That's no longer my life. Sin does not dominate me any longer. If you read chapter 7 and think Paul's still talking about that's what life's like now that I'm saved, then you're very much mistaken. Listen to what he starts in chapter 8. I'm going to read this one verse. So now, now that I'm saved, I'm born again. The old man's dead. I put on the new man. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of life, the life-giving spirit has freed you through Christ Jesus from the power of sin that leads to death. Amen. In chapter 7, the words I, me, my is mentioned 48 times. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times. Chapter 7, he's looking at himself. He's looking at the man under the old law, condemned, sinful nature, the old man dominating. You move into chapter 8, and it talks about freed by the Spirit of God to live this new life in Christ. What a difference. What a difference that can make. You say then, David... We no longer have the propensity 
to sin because the old man is dead, but we have the potential to sin. Why? Not because of the old man, because it's dead, but because of the outer man. The flesh. The outer man. That which we try to control. If we don't control the body, it controls us, don't we? All of our senses is here. That's her problem today. It's not the old man, but it's this outer man. This body that contains our senses, our passions, our desires, that wants to control us. Romans 8, 1, listen to what the New Living says. Here it is again. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus for the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you through Christ Jesus from the power of sin that leads to death. The thing that we have to control now is the flesh. In closing, how do we do that? By renewing our mind to the Word of God. This is why it's so important to read the Word of God and to look into the Word of God and to see the Word of God and to get God's view on everything. We would rather have the world's view or we'll have God's view. And we're not going to get God's view unless we get into this book. This is what it's written for. So we renew our mind to the Word of God. That helps us to control and take charge of and make sure our flesh is not in control. Paul puts it another way in Colossians 3, 1 and 5 and Romans 8, by mortifying, by putting to death the deeds of the body, he says. <laughs> when our passions and desires that sometimes are not good and are not godly, when they want to rise up, we have to put them to death by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to ask for God to help us to do these things. Temptation comes. No temptation but such as common demand. But with the temptation, God will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. But we have to ask him to help. We need his help, don't we? By keeping the body with all its desires and all of its senses subject to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 9, this is the last scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Remember, this is the great apostle Paul saying this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, but thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And by the way, he's not just talking about putting an extra couple of pounds of weight on there. Well, that's never good anyway, sure it's not. 
but he's telling us the power that this body of ours has to control our lives, either control us or we'll control it, one or the other. <coughs> so when Paul mentions all these men of the Scripture, the natural man, the spiritual man, the carnal man, the outer man, the inner man, the old man, the new man, he's teaching us how to control our lives through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, how to subject ourselves to that. So that all this around us that we have to live with every day of our lives that bombard us daily from the moment we wake until we go to bed at night, it bombards us daily. We have to be able to withstand all of that and handle that and rise above that. Otherwise, we live as carnal and it brings spiritual death to us and we don't enjoy our life in Christ and we don't live as if we are in Christ and that's not good, sure it's not. That's what Paul's saying. So my question is today, title of the message, what kind of man are you? Were some of those men, all of us, is in those categories somewhere. So what kind are we? What kind do we aspire to be? What do we want to be like? What is our aim? What is our goal in this life? To become more like Christ? To feed the new man? To feed the hidden man of the heart? That's what we want to be, amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.